Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. In 1806, Rabbi Nachman announced that he was going to start telling stories. Like many things that Rabbi Nachman did, this statement is shrouded in mystery. The statement itself is recorded among biographical information that is interesting but doesn't fully explain this decision that Rabbi Nachman made. Specifically, in that year, 1806, Tafkuf Samach which is 5,566 years since the creation, according to Jewish tradition, Rabbi Nachman's son had died. This child, Shlomo Ephraim, was only a couple of years old, and Rabbi Nachman had expressed his belief that this child was a very special child and may even have been Mashiach. Perhaps in light of that, perhaps as another element of his mysterious biography, Rabbi Nachman in that year spoke a lot about fixing souls, meaning rectifying souls of people who had been deceased. He had moved to Uman, where thousands of Jews had been killed in a riot in 1768, and he had articulated his intention of moving to Uman as a way to work with and to elevate and rectify these souls. All of that serves as, again, mysterious and possibly consequential background information for the statement he made that year, where he said, Now I will begin to tell stories. At that time, Rabbi Nachman was already known as an incredible tzaddik. His book, Likutei Maharan, the collection of his teachings, was in the world and was available to anyone who wanted it. Why tell stories? Rabbi Nachman himself, at Rosh Hashanah of the next year, one of the times during the cycle of the Jewish year when he would gather his students and followers and tell them Torah would give lessons and learnings. He taught a lesson which is number 60 in Lukate Maharan, which is called Patach Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon opened based upon a passage in the Zohar. And there, Rabbi Nachman gave some insight into why he was telling stories. There, Rabbi Nachman is speaking of the necessity of waking people up from their slumbers. As he says there, There are people who are sleeping away their days. And even though it might seem to the world that they are serving God, these people who are asleep, and they are involved with learning and with davening, Still yet, all of this service that they do, all of this devotion that they do, Hashem doesn't have nachas from it. Because all of their service and their devotion remains below. And cannot ascend. It cannot go up. Rabbi Nachman goes on there to list some reasons why people fall asleep. Maybe it's because they have inappropriate desires. Maybe it's because they eat in a way that's not holy. And with all of them, he says that they have fallen asleep. And because of that, they have, as it were, lost 
their face. They have no face. They have no panim. So Rabbi Nachman says, A person must rouse them from their sleep. It's interesting already to consider the responsibility that someone, whether it's the tzaddik or maybe all of us, must wake the person from their slumber. And Rabbi Nachman says, It's impossible to wake that person up. Except if that person wakes up on their own. If they make the move towards waking up. Because it requires an arousal from below. For a person to have their desire to be woken up. To make moves on their own. To do something. To take action towards waking up. But waking up on your own, says Rabbi Nachman, is incomplete. It's not going to be enough if a person wakes up on their own. So he says, When a person wakes up on their own, if they wouldn't wake the person up, almost like if a person were to half wake up from a nap, if I said, wake me up in 15 minutes, and I fell asleep and I woke up in 15 minutes, and I kind of looked at my watch, I might need someone there with me to tell me, get up. If they wouldn't wake up the person also, or help that person wake up, the person would fall asleep even more, even deeper. Therefore, when a person immediately when they wake up, it's required the harolo panav to show that person their face, to show that person who they are. When we're talking about this deep spiritual slumber, to show the person themselves, and to enclose that person, as it were, a mysterious statement in the face that they lost when they fell asleep, almost to allow that person to dress up as themselves or to see themselves in that way. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about waking up from sleep. Later on in the same lesson, Rabbi Nachman says, there are many bechinot, many ways or approaches to enclose the face, to present the person with their own face, with their own selves. And he says there are some who enclose the face, meaning the person who needs to be woken up, that we enclose their face with a story. But then he goes on and says, But there's some who it's impossible to wake them up with their face, showing them themselves. And it's needed to show them a higher face, as it were, perhaps something that they can aspire to. And there are sometimes when this face can be enclosed or expressed in words of Torah, that we can say a very high Torah to that person. But it can be that it's impossible to say that very high Torah in a straight and direct way. And that Torah needs to somehow be disguised in, in something lower. And these stories, these these ma'asiyot, these tales, can serve as a conduit for this deep lesson. But here, Rabbi Nachman makes an important distinction. These sipari ma'asiyot, these tales, he calls them beker shanim, from within time as it were. Maybe it could be something that historically happened. Maybe it could be something that some cool Rebbe said, some great teacher. Maybe it could be a, par- a parable that's easily recognizable as such. But Rabbi Nachman says, there are some who are so asleep that they need stories that come from a different place. They need stories that are stories that are not 
historical. They don't seem to happen within time. They're not direct. They're stories of ancient times or primordial times. So we have this distinction between Sipre Masiot, stories, tales, and Sipre Masiot, Mishanim Kamoniot, and stories from ancient times, archetypal times, as it were, myths, maybe. So again, Rabbi Nachman decided to start telling these stories, perhaps because he felt that people weren't absorbing the lessons he was conveying deeply enough. Maybe he saw a potential in them that was asleep, that needed to be roused, and it would require a different tool, a different approach. And so we have this idea, Sipri Masiot, Mishanim Kamoniot, these primordial archetypal stories. And nowadays, that phrase, Sipri Masiot, Mishanim Kamoniot, implies the contents of a book. There is a book called Sipri Masiot, Mishanim Kamoniot, which contains 13 stories. These are not the only stories that Rabbi Nachman told. There are many, many others. He was a storyteller. And there are stories that he told before he announced that he was going to be telling stories. And there are, as my friend David Mayan points out extensively, there are many literal Torah lessons that he continues to give after he announced his intention of telling stories. But this seems to be a moment of distinction. This time in 1806, when he announced his intention to tell stories to wake people up, and announces the presence and the availability or the mandate of a new category of stories that are to be seen in a certain way, approached in a certain way. And those stories are contained in the book that we have called Sipre Masiot Mishanim Kamoniot. These stories are held in very special esteem. They include stories with which you may be familiar, like The Lost Princess or The Seven Beggars. And they include a story that we are going to be focusing on for the next period of time, which is called Maaseh Mi Ben Melech Shahaya Me'avanim Tovot, the story of the son of a king who was made of precious stones. Unlike some of the other stories that Rabbi Nachman told, we have very little information about what was happening in Rabbi Nachman's mind and life and thinking before he told this story. At other times, he would have come back from a mysterious journey to Lemberg or somewhere else and then told a certain story and given it even a certain frame. With this story, we don't have that information. And one of the reasons we don't have that is because the primary amanuensis, the primary writer and documentarian of Rabbi Nachman's life and the lessons that he gave with the most exact language and all the necessary prefaces and all the necessary biographical information, Rabbi Natan of Breslov was away at that time. He was traveling. And he was usually the one who would n take note of everything that was happening around when a lesson or a story was given and would write it down. And so many of the books, or really all of the books that we have of Rabbi Nachman's teachings come from Rabbi Natan. That includes the Gutei Maharan, that includes Chaye Maharan, that includes this book itself of the collection of stories. We attribute them all and we owe all a great debt of gratitude to Rabbi Natan of Breslov for having that and collecting that information as accurately as possible and reporting it as accurately as possible. And he was away. So we don't know what was happening at that time when this story was told. There is, however, one piece of information that is worth noting. That Rabbi Natan says, Shamati, I heard, me'ishachad, from someone, me'anshenu, from our people, who said that before Rabbi Nachman told this story of the son who was made of precious stones, he said around that time, before he told this story, he said, Ani ma ba ko shall membet. 
I know a story that contains all of the 42-letter name of God. We'll come back to that in a moment to discuss that. But then Rabbi Natan goes on to say, And afterwards he told this story. But, however, We don't know if this is that story that contains the full 42-letter name of God. And he goes on to say, I also heard from his holy mouth before several years, Shamar, that the Baal Shem Tov, his great-grandfather, knew a story that contained the 42-letter name of God. And Rabbi Natan reports, and discussed with me at that time the 42-letter name. And he asked me to find a translation or a definition in Yiddish of the letters Vav and Tzadi. Again, we'll come back to this. Which is found in this 42-letter name. And I couldn't find it. And it's clear, or it seems that he knew at that time the entire secret of that name. But these two letters, Vav and Tzadi, that I mentioned above, he couldn't enter them in, he couldn't introduce them into the story. That he wanted to use to enclose, again, there's that same word, in which to disguise or enclose that particular name. So here's a story which is meant to express a name of God, as it were, to articulate somehow a way to experience a particular manifestation or expression or facet of the divine, similar to what happens when Moses is at the burning bush and he's been charged with the task of leading the Jewish people out of Egypt. And he says to God, when they ask you what your name is, what should I tell them? Meaning, how will you be manifesting? How will you be showing up here as it were? And we could imagine God as showing up in mercy or God is showing up in justice. Those are two images we use constantly. So this shame membet, this 42-letter name, is another way that God shows up in the world. And the letters of this name are the first letters of a beautiful prayer called Anna Bekoach. This is a prayer that many people say, for example, in daily morning prayers in between the section describing the korbanot, the offerings, and the section called Pesukit Zimra the Psalms of Praise. It's also a prayer that people say in Kabbalat Shabbat, Friday night, right before L'Chadodi. It's also a prayer that people say in the midst of the extended version of Sefirat Omer, of the counting of the days between Passover and Shavuot. And it is built of these beautiful words, Ana b'koach, geduot yemincha, tatir tzura, please Hashem, with the power of your right hand, free up that which is tied up or that which is bundled. That's the first sentence. That is six words. And the 42-letter prayer takes the first letters of those six words and then the first letters of the subsequent six lines. And you get seven lines, six words each, 42 letters. And that is the 42-letter name of God. Obviously, there are deep, deep mysteries that are contained within this 42-letter name. But one of the things we notice from the outside in terms of how it's used is that it is often positioned at places of transition within the prayer service. 
between the offerings and Pesukit Zimra, between not Shabbat and Shabbat, between one day of the Omer and the next day of the Omer, and to shed light a bit further, again from the outside, without delving into the meanings of each of these letters and each of these words and each of these sentences and how they fit together, this 42-letter name is also associated with the 42 places, the 42 camps through which the Jewish people traversed on their way from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, to the land of Israel. So this is a journey name. This is a name of transition and of movement. And just to bring out one more piece, the Baal Shem Tov himself said that those 42 camps within the journey of the Jewish people through the wilderness also represent 42 stages that every person goes through in their lives. Though he did not articulate very clearly and specifically what those are, he did convey that there are associations to be made from the names of those particular camps as well as things that happened in some of those camps. So here we have a divine name that implies movement, implies transition. In Rev. Cook's description of this name, and he goes through every word of this name, there's an implication of a reconciliation between one level and the next level, between an attunement or an alignment that's required in order for something to move to another level. It has to change, has to draw down energy from the thing towards which it is moving and absorb that energy as a way to transform itself and make itself more appropriate or more aligned or more open to the particular energy which is available on the next level. And so folding that back into what we know that Rabbi Nachman had said that he knows a story that includes the 42-letter name, maybe with the exception of two letters, not clear what that means, and that this might be that story, first you could imagine that there would be a story that contains these names, somehow a story that takes us through these stages, that articulates to us what's happening as we move from one space to another, as we move from one level to another. There's a story that holds that. And by hearing this story, even though we might be asleep And if Rabbi Nachman would tell us very clearly what it means to go from this stage to that stage and this stage to that stage, we would just glaze over and fall asleep. Or maybe we think we got it, but not get it. Or maybe we think we understood it and internalized it. And now we're trying to work on it, but we're really not because we're actually asleep. So rather, Rabbi Nachman says, I'm going to tell a story that contains that. I'm going to tell a story that can somehow show us or wake us up to what it means to move from one stage to another, what it means to have that kind of transition and journeying experience. And then by listening to the story and thinking about it and discussing it and delving into it, we can somehow be moved along. We can somehow be pointed towards the next level of our journey and of our experience and understand how to acclimate to that next level. So again, there's no guarantee that this is that story. And there's no guarantee that we will understand how the different 42 stages match up, even if it is that story. But either way, let's approach this story as a journey story, as a story that might be able to take us from where we are along the way towards where we are headed. Let's let Rabbi Nachman guide us through his magical capacity to tell such gripping stories that contain so much and wake us up in such deep ways. Let's use this story and the telling of this story and the discussion of this story as an opportunity to move, to absorb, to align, to connect, to understand, to reach, and to aspire. Amen.